You're listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Ron Fierstein to the program. How you doing, Ron? Good morning, Bob. Ron Fierstein is author of the book A Triumph of Genius, Edwin Land, Polaroid, and the Kodak Patent War. It's published by Anchor Wick. Uh, it's been out for a, a year and a half. And let me ask you right off the, the bat about uh, Edwin Land and find out more about uh, Ron Fierstein in a, in a few minutes. Edwin Land, who lived from 1909 to 1991, you say he was perhaps the most important yet least known inventor and technology entrepreneur in American history. Why isn't he that well-known? Well, that's a very good question, and uh, I wrote the book um, in part to try and change that. Uh, um, look, he grew up in a different age. He worked in a different age, uh, obviously, than uh, inventors uh, of today in terms of media coverage. Um, you know, his career started in the in the 20s and lasted uh, through the 80s. Um, but he was a bit of a recluse, you know, in some ways. Um, he, he had a bit of a, that Howard Hughes thing in him where he didn't uh, um, seek to be out in the public eye all the time. He mm-hmm. was happiest when he was locked away in his laboratory doing experiments. And um, he, he had the, a real dichotomy in his personality in that way, in the sense that he was a bit of a recluse, but, it, but when the time came to introduce his inventions to the public he became quite the showman um and in fact uh you know really was the model for steve jobs in so many ways steve jobs completely admired land and patterned his career after his let me uh, talk about the young edwin land uh he was born in uh, bridgeport connecticut to a uh, jewish family who had hailed from uh, eastern europe ultimately uh he did go to harvard but he dropped. But he left Harvard. I was going to say he dropped out. Maybe it wasn't quite that way. But how, what happened there? Well, it's a, it's one of those uh, stories that anyone who's a parent can relate to. Uh, I mean, imagine your young precocious teenager uh, is enrolled in a, a school like Harvard and and comes home at the end of the first year and says, "Mom, Dad, you know what?" I'm not learning much there, and I have this experiment that I want to do that's a lot more interesting to me. So I'm dropping out of school. And besides, you know what? I need uh, the equivalent of $50,000 in order to fund my experiment. So how's that, Dad? You know? (laughs) And that's exactly what he did uh, to his parents, uh, to his father in particular. Um, And the interesting thing is that his father was not so concerned about either him dropping out, nor was he concerned about um, uh, the the fact that he uh, wanted this money. He was concerned about his son protecting himself when he solved the problem that he wanted to address. And he was very, very wary of the fact that some big corporation could come along and steal from his son whatever it was he was going to invent. Uh, and so he made a deal with his son, said, fine, you can drop out, I'll give you the money, but you have to promise me that when you solve your problem, you will immediately get legal protection. And uh, it all worked out that way, and Land made this big breakthrough experiment in the in the late 20s and uh, immediately got patent protection for it, which... 
um, really became a, a foundation for the rest of his career. He was a major proponent of our patent system that protected the rights of inventors to their inventions. And um, it really it started him on his career to what he later became known and uh, known as, which was the champion of patents. Huh. Uh, and Edwin and Land... Died. I'll just add quickly that when Edwin Land died, even though most people, if you walk up to them on the street, have never heard of him, he died... Uh, basically second on the list to Thomas Edison in terms of the most patents to his name. Really? So he was really very active as an inventor. In fact, one little anecdote, I guess I'll throw it in now or ask you about it. Even when he was like a big executive of the company that he ended up founding, Polaroid, he always did an experiment every day? That's correct. He he loved to do experiments. His... um, it was really his driving motivation in life. And in fact, um, you know, the harder the experiment, the better. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, you know, it, 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 he always looked for the most difficult problems to try and solve. And in addition to that, as a corporate entity, he, Polaroid, always encouraged pure research. That is, research outside the scope, the particular scope of what their, uh, the products that they sold was, so that even though Polaroid later on was in the photography business, um, they did research on things like holograms and uh, chemical uh, um, chemical um, deriv- derivatives. Uh, and um, what's what's really you know very little known about Land, and we we can talk in a minute about his his major inventions because everybody knows and uses his inventions, but Land. Um, as a very young man, uh, became involved in the United States intelligence and military uh, operations. He was drafted on to a very high-level elite group of scientists that were formed just before World War II. Um, basically, uh, a fellow named Van Ever Bush, who, who is not related to the president's Bush, um, had been uh, the head of MIT, and he was one of the early scientists who worked on computers. Long story short, he went to Roosevelt in the late 30s and said, you know what, we're going into this war whether you know people want to or not eventually. And I think that was the consensus, even though uh, yeah. pol- politically people took the stand that they wanted to stay out of World War II. Um, but Bush went to Roosevelt and said, you know, in World War I, we messed up a bit because we never used our technology. We never took advantage of the unbelievable brain power, technological prowess we have in our country, both on the academic and the uh, corporate level. Um, let's not make that same mistake, Mr. President. And Roosevelt got the concept immediately, and apparently it was a 15-minute meeting and Roosevelt approved the formation of this high-level, elite, secret, scientific group to bring to bear America's technology on the coming war effort. Mm. And even though Land was only in his late 20s at that point, Mm. um, or early 30s, he was drafted into this group and worked for seven U.S. presidents in secret on all kinds of projects from the U-2 spy plane to the first guided missile 
um, the Polaris submarine, and many other projects that, that he contributed to or even led, the U-2 spy plane, he led the project. Okay. Well, um, we certainly have leaped ahead in his story. I'd like to go back yeah, to Edwin that. Land and his father, Harry, who had a scrap metal yard. Uh, so Harry, I guess from what you're saying, put up the money as Edwin Land in, invented uh, something that, as you said, is uh, used by you know every everyone or many people in the uh, optics field it, it was the a way to uh, polarize polarize light yeah um th- this is one of the most ubiquitous inventions out there i mean close to the wheel um people scientists had known since the 16th century that um certain substances could take the glare out of bright light and uh, they, these substances were called polarizers. They would polarize the light, which meant they would just do some things to the light waves that would take the glare out. Well, unfortunately, the only substances that were known were these large crystals, big pieces of rock. And so even though everyone could think of a million uses for a, a more practical material, no one could come up with one. And this went on for hundreds of years, literally. And Land learned about this effort when he was a teenager and dedicated himself to it. And this is the experiment that he went to his father uh, asking to, to conduct. And um, long story short, he, uh, in, in September of 1928, um, as a college dropout, less than one year at Harvard, he came up with a thin sheet of plastic in which he was able to embed microscopic crystals and align them in a certain way so that um, they would polarize light. They would take the glare out of bright light. And this became known as a polarizer. And it was used, it's been used in everything from your sunglasses to this day to LCD screens to Mm. Uh, camera filters, a million things. And, in fact, that was the reason he was drafted into the military effort in World War II, because those scientists like Bush recognized that this polarizer material could be used for a million applications in the war effort. For example, coming up with special goggles uh, for both pilots and tank commanders. This is a great picture of General Patton. Uh, wearing a pair of Polaroid goggles uh, on to- atop of a, uh, uh, a tank in uh, the African desert during World War II. Um, so it was an amazing invention to, to, to this day is, is, is used in every you know, facet of life. And among other things, um, people or companies using this polarization uh, film, if you will, uh, included Eastman Kodak, the big uh, picture-making company out in Rochester. Well, they were his first cl- client because they uh, recognized the usefulness of this material for camera filters to take the bright light out of uh, to take the glare out of bright light, and they were his first major customer and bought uh, a large supply and started what became a five, six-decade long relationship between uh, Land and Eastman Kodak, one that started as mentor and protege and ended up as bitter enemies in federal court. Now, Edwin Land um, was, would you say he was the founder of the company that came to be known as Polaroid? And uh, and what, how did that come to be? 
Well, he, he yes, he was the founder of Polaroid, but Polaroid was actually founded and started um, just based on the polarizer business long before they got involved in photography. So he had built, a, in his 30s, he had built a huge company based upon the polarizer technology. And as World War II was coming to an end, he actually became a little concerned about the future of the polarizer business because the big customer he had always envisioned was Detroit, was the automobile industry, where he thought he could sell them polarizers for every car to take the glare out of headlights. But he was never able to convince the automobile industry uh, to do that. They just didn't uh, think they needed to in order to sell the cars, and it was expensive, and so on and so forth. So Land was sort of at wit's end, you know, thinking, well, the war's going to come to an end, and I'm sort of hitting the end of the polarizer business. I can't really expand it that much bigger, you know, beyond what I'm already doing, which is sunglasses and camera filters and so on. And he was in a bit of a despair because he had built this fantastic technology company with all kinds of great engineers, and he needed a new challenge. Well, he was on a vacation with his family in New Mexico, Santa Fe, and they went for a, he went for a walk with his young daughter, who was, you know, four or five years old, and they're snapping pictures with a conventional Kodak camera, um, and uh, they're walking to the drugstore to drop off the film, you know, because in those days you took a roll of film, you dropped it at the drugstore, and the drugstore would ship it off to a laboratory where it would take two or three weeks to get your pictures back. Mm-hmm. Well, the, his daughter was impatient, and his daughter started complaining, Daddy, Daddy, why can't I see the pictures now? I want to see the pictures now. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, most fathers would just dismiss that as some little kid, you know, being unrealistic, but not Edwin Land. That was the problem, the tough problem, the insoluble problem that he had been looking for. And he dove on it and into it immediately. And that became the thrust of his research and became the focus of the Polaroid Corporation for decades to come. That would be instant photography. We're talking with Ron Fierstein. He is author of A Triumph of Genius, Edwin Land, Polaroid, and the Kodak Patent War. The uh, book is uh, published by Anchorwick. Uh, more with Ron Fierstein in just a moment. This is Bob Cudmore. Thanks for listening to the Historians Podcast. We hope you enjoy our productions, and we need your help. We keep going because of contributions to our GoFundMe campaign. You can donate very easily online, gofundme.com forward slash historians2017. Some of you I know don't like to donate online. You could Donate by sending us a check in the mail. Make out the check to Bob Cudmore. Send to 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Ron Fierstein is with us. His uh, book is called A Triumph of Genius, Edwin Land, Polaroid, and the Kodak Patent War. So after World War II... Uh, Edwin Land starts working on instant photography. He, he came have, came up with various, oh, I don't know, iterations or ways of doing it. But the what we think of as the Polaroid camera took years and years to develop, did it not? Well, it did. Um, they were able, actually, he started work in late 43, uh, December of 43, um, and it really only took until uh, th- like three years before he had a system that he could demonstrate and did demonstrate. Um, and then in 1948, 
the first commercial product came out. But those that first embodiment of the process required a lot of operations by the photographer. You would take the picture and then you would pull this uh, sandwich of a positive and negative out of the camera. You'd have to time it. Then you'd have to peel it apart, the positive from the negative. Um, then you'd have to look at the negative and coat it with a chemical that would preserve the image and prevent it from dis- you know, uh, disappearing. And then you probably would have to um, mount that photograph on a piece of cardboard in order to prevent it from curling up and so on. So it was quite a lot of operations. In his original conception, Land just imagined a film unit popping out of the camera and uh, a hole and with nothing else to do. Uh, and he eventually got there, uh, but that was not until 1972 when the uh, SX-70 model was introduced. Hmm. And and soon thereafter is when you kind of enter the life of uh, Edwin Land. Um, in fact, uh, I didn't uh, really give a lot of biographical detail about our uh, guest, Ron Fierstein, but you were a young lawyer on the team of litigators representing Polaroid, in its patent battle with Eastman Kodak over uh, instant photography. And I'm probably simplifying a lot, but what happened was uh, Edwin Land finally comes up with instant photography, and then Eastman Kodak decides it's going to enter that uh, that realm as well, so it became a, a legal battle over the, over the rights to the process? Well, that, yeah, I mean, I, I would just... Step back one second and, and just explain that I mean one of the motiv- the second motivation for writing the book besides telling the story of Edwin Land was to describe this relationship uh, between Polaroid and Kodak and how it evolved over the years. As we mentioned before, Kodak was the first uh, customer for Land's polarizer. When Land started his research on photography, I mean, where, where do you think he went to get the materials he needed? Uh, you know, photographic chemicals, paper, mm-hmm. film, all kinds of stuff. He went to his friends at Kodak. He didn't tell them what he was doing, but he said, you know, I'm working on something. Could I have this stuff? So Kodak started uh, providing him with all the materials he used in all of his research. And then when he came up with his process, he realized that he couldn't possibly, Polaroid couldn't possibly manufacture the film because that's a very complicated process to manufacture film. You know, it's light sensitive, has to be done in the dark. It's a very complicated, you know, manufacturing thing. So he went to Kodak and asked Kodak, would you manufacture the film for our product? And Kodak said, sure. And they did that for decades. For every Polaroid film was manufactured by Kodak. By the 70s, Kodak um, Polaroid was Kodak's second largest corporate customer. The only larger ones were cigarette manufacturers for whom Kodak made small white plastic tubes that they turned into cigarette filters because Kodak had a huge plastics operation. Mm. So Polaroid and Kodak had this fantastic, mutually beneficial relationship where Kodak was the mentor, Polaroid was the protege, Kodak made a ton of money off of Polaroid. Until 1968, when Land showed them the prototype for what became SX-70, the first instant photograph that would automatically come out of the camera and you would just hold it in your hand and watch it like magic develop. For the first, up until that point, Kodak considered Polaroid to be a curiosity, a niche product, nothing that could ever challenge its dominance of the amateur consumer uh, market in photography. But this changed their perception. For the first time, they thought, uh-oh, this might actually impact us. 
and they did their own internal analysis and decided they could lose $10 billion in film sales if Polaroid put out this product. So Kodak went to Polaroid and said, okay, we'll help you with this new film, no problem, but you have to let us manufacture some and sell it ourselves in our trademark yellow boxes mm-hmm. and compete with you. Well, Polaroid couldn't abide that. I mean, this was David and Goliath, and Polaroid knew it couldn't compete directly with Kodak, and so it said, no, we can't do that. And they fought back and forth for years about that until finally they went their separate ways. Polaroid went off on its own to learn how to make film for the first time, and Kodak went off to come up with a competing system. Well, they, they fast forward, 1972, Polaroid comes out with theirs, and it's a big hit. Land is on the front cover of Life magazine and Time magazine and newspapers and magazines around the world, and it's a huge sensation. Kodak is still working on theirs. It took till 1976 for Kodak to come out with a competing system, and um, when they did, it became apparent very quickly that they had used some of Polaroid's technology, and so Kodak was left with no choice but to sue Kodak for patent infringement. And as you mentioned, I was a very young lawyer at the law firm in New York called Fish and Neve that represented Polaroid in that lawsuit, and uh, I found myself on the Polaroid team and worked on that case for several years. And Polaroid and won the land directly. And Polaroid won the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Polaroid ultimately won the lawsuit, uh, collected almost a billion dollars in damages from Kodak, which uh, stood as the record until last year. Uh, so it's it stood the test of time for decades. And more importantly, though, because Kodak's actions were so egregious, the court made them get out of the business. So Kodak, w- w- the legal term would be, they were enjoined from further infringement, which meant that Kodak had to take all of its instant cameras and film out of the stores immediately. And even even though there were 13 million Americans who owned Kodak cameras and would be left high and dry with no film to use, hmm. the courts ordered them to get out of the business. And uh, that stood up on appeal all the way to the Supreme Court. And since then, uh, the po- idea of these instant pictures, Polaroid pictures, if you will, um, they've really, I mean, they, they, they still make them. But it faced competition. I heard you in another interview uh, about this uh, from digital cameras and also places like Walmart, where they develop uh, film very quickly. That's exactly right. I mean, it's it's sort of ironic that instant photography has has gone full cycle. It started off as a niche curiosity, and it's back to being a niche curiosity. I mean, uh, where you know you, uh, um, but. The courts, in, in the course of this litigation, particularly in the damages phase, they litigated, they actually studied the question of what caused instant photography to uh, decline, and the two forces are the ones that you mentioned. The first one being one-hour photo processing. I mean, it, all of a sudden you could get your pictures back in an hour instead of two weeks, and because you could take those pictures with a fancy camera, with all kinds of fancy lenses, much fancier a better quality equipment than the instant uh, cameras were um, that that uh, that held a lot of appeal to photographers. So that was a big uh, blow to instant photography. And then, of course, digital was the final nail in the coffin. Mm. But the, but the one thing that neither of those two um, can uh, duplicate or provide is the immediacy of that print in your hand. And so there still is a, a little niche for instant photography. 
um, for people who want to take a picture and then have that print in, in their hand immediately. And that's what today's Polaroid Corporation still does? That's what they do. It, it's interesting. It's not the same Polaroid Corporation. The Polaroid Corporation of Edwin Land went bankrupt. It was sold in bankruptcy twice. And finally, the remnants of it, which really amounted to just the name, you know, the brand, if you will, and the logo, were sold to uh, investment investment bankers, basically, uh, venture capitalists. And uh, they took that name and they started licensing it uh, for to companies for anything, pretty much, that had to do with technology. So I think you can go out and buy a Polaroid television or a Polaroid battery or this mm-hmm. or that and they they do carry the name polaroid but it is not the same company that edwin land founded and the photographs the polaroid photographs that you can take these days uh, are not the same comp the same polaroid and it's not even the same technology okay. um, did uh, the polaroid corporation go bankrupt on uh, edwin land's watch if you will or was it after he had passed no after he had passed uh. I mean, it was in decline because the technology was in decline. And, and I think both Polaroid and Kodak suffered from the fact that uh, they didn't adapt to progress. Hmm. And both companies uh, uh, were hurt by that and sort of left behind by technology. We just have a few minutes left. Back to the man you're writing about. He's typically called Dr. Land, but he never got a, a doctorate. But everybody agreed. Why did people call him then, Dr. Land? Well, it was an honorarium. He he must have received fifty honorary doctorates, and um, uh, you know he was. I mean, he was well regarded um, in the technology world. He received you know the Presidential Medal of Freedom from John F. Kennedy. He he uh, he, he received just about every scientific award out there. As I said, you know he was the four next to uh, Thomas Edison, the foremost inventor of all time. So. Um, it was an honorarium, and mm-hmm. he, he he liked the idea, and he thought it was a bit humorous in the fact that he didn't even have a bachelor's degree. <laughs> and you said at the beginning how Steve Jobs uh, really idolized uh, Edwin uh, Land and that both of them were uh, perfectionists in addition to being great showmen and uh, and marketers. Exactly. I mean, Land... Jobs idolized Land. He admitted that in in interviews that he gave during his life, and he he just he, he caught uh, you know the way Steve Jobs would introduce Apple products at stockholders meetings and highly anticipated stockholders meetings with a lot of media coverage. Well, Land was doing that in the '60s and '70s, um, and even the kind of corporate culture at at Polaroid. You know, it's interesting. Land at one point when SX70 came out in the '72 was asked by the journalists, well, how much market research did you do before you invested all this money in, re- in coming up with this product? Because Polaroid didn't ever borrow a penny. They used their own profits for their research. And Lance said, well, we didn't do any. Are you kidding me? Why would we do any? Because our job is to give people things that they didn't even know that they wanted. Right. Well, does that sound familiar? Yes, it does. You may have heard uh, Steve Jobs say that, because that is the exact same philosophy that Apple adopted, and Land and, and Jobs got it from Land. Again, the uh, title of the uh, book is The Triumph of Genius, Edwin Land, Polaroid, and the Kodak 
patent war. Uh, maybe now a little bit more about Ron uh, Fierstein. You're no longer, well, obviously you have a great interest in patent law, but you're more in the entertainment business. And among your many clients, I believe, is your brother, who pronounces his last name a little differently, Harvey Firestein. Is that right? That's correct. I, my brother is a playwright and an actor, and we've worked together since the 60s, uh, really. We, we actually wrote some musicals off-Broadway together in the 60s, but I, I've been uh, his lawyer and business manager for decades, and we've worked together. And, and even now, uh, I've done a little bit more. I'm, I'm one of the co-producers of his latest musical on Broadway called Kinky Boots. Okay. It's a fantastic entertainment, and uh, and I get a lot of pride uh, from from working with my brother, who's an incredibly talented, important uh, person in the theater world. Indeed. Well, uh, thank you very much for uh, telling us about Edwin Land. The book is uh, published by Anchorwick, and it's called a Triumph of Genius: Edwin Land, Polaroid, and the Kodak Patent War. Ron Fierstein, thank you very much for joining us on the Historian's Podcast. You're very welcome, Bob. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.